Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with a mission to propel this great industry forward. We are recording live from MEP Force. It is very exciting to be actually live with somebody in the room too. I'm actually physically here. It's not a this hologram. Is, this is awesome. Uh, so please welcome our, our great panel. In the room with me is Amy Peck, CEO of Endeavor VR. Then we have Jake Olson, CEO of Dato, and James Simpson, product manager of Evolve Mechanical at Evolve MEP. Welcome. Thanks, Todd. Good to be here. Yeah. This is and welcome back. All three of you guys have been on the podcast before. It's uh, it's good to to have you guys back on and kind of pick your brains on on what's been happening so far during the the festivities of MEP Force. It's a good start for sure. You, you had a good agenda lined up today, so it was exciting. Well, thanks. Well, so the the theme this year is indestructible, and want to start by what does that mean to all of you guys? What is when you hear indestructible? What kind of images pop up to you? All right, well, shall I go? I, I think actually coming off of the year and a half, I know we're gonna say the word at some point, but I like to call it to the, you know, the event that shall remain nameless because we hear it a lot. <laughs> um, but I think you know, indestructible is sort of our ability to manifest change, even though we didn't expect it and it wasn't our choice and we were in reactive mode, what we did see was this ability for us to really change the way we do everything and, the, and think about also what's important to us as individuals, but you know, forced companies to look at how to use technology to collaborate and to kind of keep us together. So I guess indestructible is that, you know, the indomitable spirit of, you know, technology and humanity trying to merge. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I agree. I think the um, both the personal level of how agile we were, how, I mean, there was like a week or two of, of pure, at least in, in my life, of pure like, oh my God, the world's ending, what are we going to do about this pandemic? And both pro professionally and personally. And I think within a couple of weeks, like, you know, we got right back to business and we moved things to Zoom and we had family Happy. I mean, I've seen cousins I haven't seen for years because all of a sudden we put out a Zoom link and then they're all on the Zoom and like, you know, and the same thing happened with work, I think, too. We just figured out how to um, be indestructible by being agile and, and embracing uh, new ways to do things. And there's something to be said, I think, Amy, about just humanity or kind of spirit as a whole, um, just in ingenuity, agility and uh, uh whatever you call that, the will to live. I mean, really indestructible. And that was, uh, uh, I'm sure you've all had some changes in your life that'll stay on forever post pandemic and positive changes that we've all learned by being indestructible in the last 18 months. Yeah, and I would just, and I think it was really interesting that we're pretty much all aligned on that because I was actually just gonna say resilience is what I mainly think of, right? And more than anything kind of, um, I guess just just genuine kind of human creativity. Oftentimes you see, you know, hard times, um, you know, not always, but very often promote the best in people. And then also just trigger a lot of those native things in us like ingenuity, creativity, um, and just overall resiliency, right? So, um, you know, you kind of have to evolve, pun intended. And um, I think that's, that's the main thing I've saw. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm aligned on both of those points. Nice. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about the indestructible 
theme is not only on the, the past trend of we made it, <laughs> uh, but also looking forward to, I, I think the, the MEPs, the construction is going to, it has to go through MEP moving forward. Like the MEP trades become the heart of construction. You don't build anything without the trades. It's the core and it's time for the trades to, to take their, their seat at the table in that spot with that mantle of they're the ones that are going to get stuff done. They're the ones that have already been prefabbing. They're the ones that are, have been on the innovative side in construction. And I think it's time for them to, to get their kind of just rewards from that. That's a slow trend, Todd. Happening <laughs> slower than a lot of us would like, but it is happening. And, I, and I, I'd like to think the last year accelerated that, but you know, I, I have a lot of friends on the design and kind of design build side, you know, GC owner and architect engineer. And it's funny to hear them say, you know, that project went really well because we brought the mechanical contractor in early, or, you know, we, yeah. we actually sat down and had a, a pre meeting to talk about design possibilities for you know, lighting or, or electrical. And it's funny to finally hear somebody, you know, the enemy saying, you know what, that worked good by bringing them in early. Maybe we should do that again. You're and, like, duh, that's, that's yeah, what we've been exactly. saying. I've been saying this for years. <laughs> you, see, you see a lot of, um, of working backwards through what's typically been like the supply chain of, a, of, I guess, knowledge and like the development of a construction site, right? It's kind of like almost working backwards a lot now where it really is starting within mine. And there's a million reasons, I'm sure, while we'll, while we'll all get into that um, later on during the podcast. But yeah, I mean, you, you see that a ton, um, kind of more of a move from what we call on the tech side, uh, like waterfall versus agile, right? You're seeing that kind of vicariously almost in the construction industry as well. So a lot of similarities. So we started off MEP Force today with Dan McCarthy, CEO of Dodge Data's keynote, unleashing the, the power of data to be indestructible. So he paired the digital transformation happening with data. How do you guys see the digital transformation of the last 18 months through the lens of the, um, everything that's going on with, with data coming in? I, personally, I hate talking about data just as data. And, um, and I think everybody talks about big data, data this, data that. I actually thought I liked his example because I don't think it's maybe what contractors think about when you say data, but he talked about, you know, when you're thinking about winning a big job, what are the data points you need? Like, you know, who's bidding on that? Who's my competition? What's the pricing strategy? And I don't think that, you know, when I think a lot of contractors when they hear data, they think something that's going to come out of their bid model or something. And, um, you know, he actually gave a, what I thought was a pretty practical example about building a data set around, you know, maybe winning work in my, in my market or growing into a new you know, a new business area that they don't win work. And how do you build a data set around that? And that, that, that for me was a good example. I think that made it practical. That wasn't just talking about data for data's sake. So that, that was my big takeaway listening to the keynote. I'm curious, Jake, what's the, the gut reaction of uh, anti, not anti-data, but the, well, don't talk about data, please. <laughs> I, I just think it's been talked about for five years with very little. Um, I mean, anybody can walk around and say data is the future, data is great, data is this, but it's just, it's not actionable. It's not, it doesn't make it personal enough. It's the context, right, Jake? Yeah. Exactly. You got to yeah. bring that into what does that actually mean? Because, you know, data to, to James means something to the finance person to the, so, you know, what, 
don't don't use the word data like let's talk yeah. about actual yeah. like no make it there's a there's a lot of good stuff on that jake it's really interesting you, you bring it up and i want to harp on it too much but if anybody's interested you can find some pretty cool graphics about it but there's all kind of like little informational graphics of like oh well this is raw data right this is sorted data this is you know data with a story for instance at the end and just it kind of just shows for instance like legos to kind of like some assembled walls and at the end data with a story is like a house right and i think it just it hits on that completely of that data is impactful collecting the data is obviously important but it's really more about how you use it what the story it tells because that's the only way it actually resonates and you really get that meaning from it so i think yeah i, I completely agree autodesk construction cloud helps specialty contractors work more productively every day the world's leading specialty contractors rely on ACC to drive company profitability by ensuring quality, winning more work, and reducing risk as they deliver more complex projects faster. Autodesk offers the best solutions across the project from design detailing to pre-con and field execution into a single platform connected in a common data environment. With Autodesk Construction Cloud, teams are able to win more work by streamlining the pre-construction process, issue more bids, and increase bid accuracy. They can mitigate risk by avoiding rework and mistakes by always working from the latest plans and documents. They can increase profitability, get insights into project success drivers to maximize returns on every job. They can capture more work, leverage BIM models in the field for work in place tracking and schedule sequencing. They can connect crews connecting the field and office through faster and more sustained technology adoption. And finally, they can ensure quality, build it right the first time, avoid clashes in the field with automated clash detection. For specialty contractors, this results in more productive field and office teams, delivering value and exceeding customer expectations and better business outcomes. To learn more directly from the Autodesk team at MEP Force, check out their on-demand session how subs can leverage data to power business results and their live roundtable with the queen of prefab herself, Amy Marks on August 30th at 3.30 PM Eastern. Yeah, I, it's one of the problems that I see in the construction industry is there's so much data coming at people, but nobody takes the time to sit down on the front side and map out why am I collecting this data? What am I going to do with this data? What's the point yeah. of having this data? And so they're just, they're it's just data overload. Well, I love, I love that data with a story because I think that it kind of cuts to the heart of it. And, you know, data, again, it's, it is sort of meaningless unless you have a perspective. And, you know, I, I know I always end up talking about AR and VR because I'm kind of immersed in it, <laughs> pun intended. Um, but you know, data is very much a two-way street, right? So you're collecting data, but you're also kind of putting, putting data out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what we really want to get to is, you know, I know we don't know all why we're collecting all the data, for example, you know, in, in VR and AR, we're collecting all of those interactions and we don't really have a perspective on what we're going to do with it yet. Um, but it is important to kind of store it because when you look at the way data analytics has evolved, even today, if somebody puts a data analytics, you know, matrix in front of you, 
there are very few employees at the company who are really looking at it and digging in. Like we're relying more and more on data scientists and people who are analysts to kind of help us parse this data. And what I think we need to get to is a, is a better next generation kind of visual language around what data is, because I think it goes back to, to, you know, what, what James just said is, is it's got to tell a story. You have to have some meaning behind it and then to be able to leverage it for some kind of actionable insight around whatever it is you're looking at, you know, mm -hmm. and it needs to be bucketed into a particular outcome that you're looking to solve. Mm -hmm. I think Dan said, I wrote it down, it was like, define the data you need by the questions you want to answer. And I thought that was a good way just to frame it. Like, okay, let's think about what we want to answer. Do we want to be more efficient? Do we want to win more work? Do we want to save money on purchasing? Whatever. Okay, in order to save more money on purchasing, how do we take our supplier data and use that, for example, as a, as a way to make a story out of that? Um, but it's, I think, uh, Amy, you're onto something that I, I hear a lot, and, and I think there's good examples of why this is true. Um, collecting the data now, because it will be, you know, we might unlock something from that in the future, even though we didn't know we needed that data. And um, I always think like Google Photos, you probably put your photos in Google Photos, you've been dumping, that's like data. And then all of a sudden, Google adds face recognition technology. And now I can go back in time to all these photos I've taken for 30 years and find you know, pictures of my brother for the entire history of his life. And that's an example where I could have manually done all this data work, but kind of technology caught up with the data set I had. And now I get all these awesome insights out of it. And I think there's a lot of examples probably in your world of VR and just reality capture that you can see a future where you can look back in time and thank God you had that data type of yeah. deal. Yeah, absolutely. So Dan had a, a good line that I really liked on, uh, you, you need to know, do you know that or do you think that and yeah. have that really embraced in the culture? And I, I thought, you know, Jake, to, to your point of, you know, really mapping out those questions and mapping the data back to those questions. I, I thought that it was interesting, not just to say that line, but then to map it into the cultural aspect of the company. How do you think that you go about accomplishing that and making it part of the DNA of a company? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to, to saying, all right, well, what, what are we trying to study? What are we trying to accomplish? I would say that I, I almost start every kind of discovery session with, with a client. Look, I, I start with their annual report. Like, what do they care about? What are they putting out there to their shareholders who they care a lot about? <laughs> and, and then I have an impression of what their goals are going in. And then they, I know that they don't know necessarily that much about the technology and what, you know, my goal is then to kind of marry those two. So I, so I come at it with a perspective and then I am kind of using data to either prove myself correct or incorrect. And the important piece of that is that you're not just using data to prove yourself right, that you're using data to show whether you are right or wrong. And, mm -hmm. and, and I know that seems so obvious, but people are often using data to just prove themselves right, but they're not looking at both sides of the argument mm -hmm. and that's critical. Yeah. Or reading the data, how they want to read it well, yeah. to make themselves look good. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> co co yeah. Confirmation bias. Right. Yeah. No, that, I, that, I that, that's huge. 
Amy, yeah, is there like, is there a way you set up a mental model going into it to avoid that? Because it just seems like inherent in, if you have a strong opinion and then you're gonna go get data to, you just end up looking at the data that enforces your opinion. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's about uh, listening and kind of being present. I actually do a, a whole talk about, you know, why mindfulness is important in business. Mm -hmm. And it sounds, you know, in, in a lot of, you know, kind of cultures that feels like, oh my God, that's such a California thing, like kumbaya, we're going to go meditate now. It's like, no, be present because when you're present, you hear information as if it's new, as opposed to you know, just always making assumptions. And we have a tendency as humans to kind of file things away as truths. Like that's what we're busy doing. And, and I have a couple of great examples of this. If anyone wants to reach out, I'll, I'll share a video uh, of, a, of a woman, Ellen Langer, who's a Harvard professor who has a great talk on this. Um, but you have to, you have to sort of train yourself to be really fluid and sort of in the moment and just listen to what people are saying to you. Hmm. So it makes me think of one of the, the breakouts, the um, how to deal with tech debt on with Travis Boston and Luke. And I'm going to butcher his last name if I even try it. Of him, at Helm Mechanical, um, and them talking all about being mindful of what technology that you're using and the debt that you're taking on when you uh, bring on new technology. Uh, Jake, I, I know that you were kind of in that that class for some of it. You mind kind of recapping what they were talking about in that session? They had a few points that, that stuck with me that I really enjoyed. Um, I think one of them was realizing you need some level of tech debt to grow your company. And I think they said, you know, think about it as like your tech debt is like a credit union. You're going to have to borrow to, to grow. And so you know, simply having tech debt isn't a bad thing. You might, and tech debt in, in the way they defined it would be something like, um, you know, maybe writing a Dynamo script to solve a problem today. And then that's not a very robust Dynamo script. It does one little thing. And then next thing you know, everybody's using it because it turns out that worked really good, but nobody ever thought about the edge cases. So now you've got debt. Like in order to keep using that, somebody's got to go back and fix all that stuff. So they pointed out that that's not a bad thing but you have to be aware of it. And uh, I thought that was a pretty, a good way to handle that. You know, it's okay to embrace new future technologies. They may not even work great. Just realize what it is and where it's at. The other piece of their talk that I think is becoming, I'm hearing more and more from my customers and I think in the industry is, you know, kind of identifying where your points of failure are. And this is related to tech debt. So if I'm relying on one system or one software or one platform, in fact, I'm so reliant on it that my business profits will, or you know, the vitality of my business could even be affected if it fails. Do I know what that is? You know, is that my modeling software? Is that my PM software, my ERP, my pay software? You know, do I know what those single points of failure are in my business? And should I have a plan B? And I think they balance it right. You don't always have to have a plan B, you know. Maybe you trust, maybe you do your payroll through, you know, whatever, and, and you trust that that's not going to go down. Um, but if it did go down, realize that you're going to have a lot of, <laughs> you, yeah, that could be the end of your business, right? So I think they are opening a good conversation that I'm hearing more, especially for companies embracing new technology. If that fails, how much of my business is dependent on it? How fast can I recover for it? And do I have a plan B in the works where I can quickly you know, bring in another modeling software, bring in another plugin that could maybe solve the problem. And uh, 
That was, I think we're going to hear more about that in the industry as more technologies, early stage technologies permeate the industry as more contractors adopt new things and try new things and take on risk of understanding, you know, service level agreements and what's the chance that this goes down and what it's the impact of my business if it does. So that was long-winded, Todd, sorry, but those were two points I really <laughs> liked from, from that talk. Well, you know, one, Jake, that um, I, I think, like, overwhelmingly, I think the, the core message I really heard from it, it really ended up being be intentional about your technology you're using, um, the implementation of it, like just really be intentional about it, right? Like the output you get is based on your input. So, you know, be intentional and, you know, and it, it is kind of becoming um, a very technology that is integrated into the construction workflows, right? Whether it's uh, tech debt or or uh, feature bloat, which is another tech term, right? Yeah. You can definitely have internally if you get too many softwares, which ones do I use, right? And it can really become overwhelming. Um, and that's one thing that you have to do is be intentional. But just because of that kind of is such a growing field, you do see a lot of contractors implementing the like construction technologist role or something like that, just to be dedicated to it and be that intentional. And I just really thought that just continued to hammer home on that point more than anything. So yeah, definitely interesting. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Evolve MEP, MEP construction software for Revit. Evolve's MEP software for Revit makes project collaboration fast, simple, and more productive, which in turn significantly reduces project risk and cost. Born from the reality of a lack of available skilled labor in the industry, Evolve MEP has transformed the MEP detailer workflow. It's time for MEP to harness the Revit platform to offer seamless collaboration like no other software before it. Visit evolvemep.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, I think, you know, Travis said that, you know, that's, that's you know, Luke and Travis yeah. both agree that Travis's job is there to make sure yeah. he's identifying those <laughs> gaps. Definitely. For but sure. how many, you know, how many companies have, you know, that type of Travis role to help make those decisions right. and point out the weaknesses? Probably not a lot yet. One of the aspects that I found interesting when I was in that class was they were talking about that nobody uses 100% of any software that you have. You use a, probably a small percentage of it. But how do you know that, like what you're not using? How do you know what you don't know? Uh, that maybe I should be using this feature, that it would be beneficial to me, but I don't know it. I don't even know it exists. How do you then find out it exists and then how to use it and then it could be beneficial and should you even care like how was i just thought that was an interesting question any yeah. thoughts on that yeah no i think that, i think that's a, i think jake is probably the best suited to answer that because i think it's down to the software vendor making sure that it's a staged approach to you know kind of pushing software forward and um in our in our talk or on our round table Jake said something that was that was really smart. It's like, you know, not everybody is ready for our software. And it's really hard to say no to a you know customer who's trying to pay you. But sometimes it's the smart thing to do to make sure that they're ready and that they're ready to actually evolve with that software. But um, I'll leave it to Jake to kind of talk about his experience. You summed it up pretty good there, Amy. But I think for us, we've learned having an on-purpose on plan goes back to James, what you said, being intentional, really defining, like we've done enough of these implementations now, I can say, this is what you are going to need, contractor, to be successful with our technology. And here's the resources and commitment. And here's what we're going to do. Here's our side. 
but if we're going to go into this relationship uh let's you know both agree let's get out a piece of paper and agree what each side's going to do and and i think for some people that opens their eyes to um the commitment but also uh having done this enough i mean we can kind of speak authoritatively like these are the pieces that you're going to need to bring to the table whether that's personnel field office staff whatever and the <laughs> The alternate to this is like, okay, let's go buy something and, and throw it on the, you know, we'll, we'll give it to the the tech guy or the BIM guy or something and, and you know, the, he'll get it to work because it looked cool. I saw it at a conference and I call that playing around. Oh, we just want to play around with the software. Or, oh, just give me a trial or something like that. And that always fails. So we've, we've really pivoted our kind of onboarding to a very intentional on purpose plan. And James, I'm sure you've learned a lot of the same on, on your yep, side. No, I mean, I, I would, I would do that with, with all of that. I mean, um, yeah. It's something you see. I actually, I mean, I would like to say that, you know, me, me and you, you know, we've, and I guess the rest of my team as well are, are the only two companies doing it, right? And we realized that we're solving it. We're being really uh, intentional about implementation. But, you know, as, as really these feature sets continue to grow to serve all these diverse needs, it's just, it's becoming something you just have to do on the software side to make sure your customers, number one, are, are making the, the, the best decision and, and the best decision collectively, right? At the end of the day, um, the best thing for all parties is for to have a happy customer, right? It, it makes yeah. the product better. You get good ideas. Ultimately, they're successful. You know, that's what everybody wants in the end. And so being intentional about that evaluation period with them, treating it more as a partnership versus just a, a contract a lot of times, and then also having everyone kind of eyes wide open into the deal of what it brings, um, you know, that, that's 100% uh, a joint effort, right? It's not, it's not on the customer to know what you have to offer. Um, or, or to be successful on their own. So yeah, um, completely did it on all those points. I think it's a good for the industry, this move towards SaaS or subscription software. So, you know, monthly or, or annual subscription. I think that's actually a good thing for, for both parties because, you know, you guys remember the days when, well, Autodesk used to buy, you know, for a couple grand, your CAD, whatever, 12 or AutoCAD 12. And that's when I started in those days. But uh you buy it once and then gone. I can't find anybody and they're gone and you got what you got. So the whole sales process was like getting that big sale and then the, then the software support disappears. And James, you know this, I mean, when, when you're a subscription, I mean, both parties have to like actively make yep. it work. Customer can yep. cancel yep. the subscription anytime they want. And unless we're, you know, actively making sure they're getting value from it. So I, I, I know there's negatives to SaaS. I mean, people feel like I'm, you know, it's an endless bill I'm going to pay forever, but I think it's a good, um, been a good move for the industry in construction in particular. It really gets the right, yep. uh, the right motivations on both sides, I believe. Yep. Completely agree for sure. So Amy, you brought up the, the round table that you and Jake were on. You mind giving a, an overview of, of what that round table really was? A, a recap. No, yeah. I think it was, it was great. Cause it really, really kind of talked about, um, you know, what, what is the next generation workforce? What are the, what are the jobs of the future? Um, you know, how will technology, you know, kind of impact construction, you know, what was happening pre event that shall remain nameless and now post. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, I think, I thought we, we covered a lot of really good ground and we also had a really engaged audience who, who sent us some, some good questions. Nice. Was there any particular point that got the most kind of audience engagement or, or questions coming in? Well, one of the, one of the recurring themes was, 
you know, around, uh, you know, just attracting the right workforce and how companies, A, can let, you know, potential employees know that they're sort of a tech forward company. And then how do those employees find those companies? Um, Jake said something that I, that I think was, was really, really um, kind of encapsulated this too, in terms of what makes a, a tech forward company. And it's, it's really culture, right? And, mm. and, and honest culture, mm. not a marketing ploy, but like true culture. So I, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, yeah. I, I just think all the talk about AR, VR, MR was really, I mean, God, that's what grabbed me. <laughs> <laughs> that's where all the comments came in. Come on, Amy, Amy be honest. <laughs> you guys are just boosting each other up here. You exactly. guys are your own exactly. agents here. Exactly, yeah. We I like it. We're both like Venmoing each other yeah. in the background. <laughs> each other during the round table. I get it, I get it. <laughs> no, that was good. I, I thought that was, I thought that was, I, I, and honestly, those were very good points about where, you know, the future, I think there's a lot of interest in the future. And those are, you know, to some people, fewer future looking technologies, but uh, either or you or uh, Scott said it, but I mean, that's consumer tech in the next, you know, whatever horizon, one year, if you're living in San Francisco, five years, I'm just joking, but you know, it's consumer <laughs> tech in our, our lives, probably somewhat today and probably way more so in five years. And when, when consumer tech, when that permeates consumer tech, it's just by nature, it's going to be construction tech. And um, it's like those trends, I think, are very real going forward. And that, I don't know where you're, can she repeat that here, Todd? Or is that like double content for the day talking about? <laughs> you can repeat, this is the recap. So we get to <laughs> just kind of put a bow on everything here. <laughs> no, and I think, um, yeah, around, you know, when it's the same, same thing with mobile devices, right? Mm -hmm. we, we started to see, um, you know, cell phones become smartphones and then they became a tool, not only for our day-to-day -day lives, but then, you know, were ubiquitous at work as well. And I think we're going to see that with the wearables that are, that are purportedly coming from both Facebook and Apple, although they've even now changed their path a little bit where it's going to be more of a VR oriented pass-through device um, which, which is kind of mixed reality, but it's, it's not, not quite, but we kind of have to put a stake in the ground and, and start because we need to get the user feedback. One, one of the things that Apple is best at, and I think it also speaks to how, um, companies should evolve software in the SaaS model is that, you know, they, they put out, you know, an, an iOS SDK, and then they sort of see then how both developers use it and how the end users use it. And they take some of those key learnings and some of the best features and interactions and they bake it into the next SDK. And we need to see that kind of start to happen then as we start to use these devices in the workplace, like what is valuable to people? How, how do they interact? And how do they interact with the layers of going back to data um, that we'll mm -hmm. see? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that it becomes the, as we have it in our daily lives, it becomes an expectation yeah. when you come to work. I'm yeah. like, why can I do this uh, on my, you know, in my personal use, but not do this? <laughs> I was going to say the same sense. thing. I mean, in, in the last five years, I mean, look at like, you know, skilled labor, the view towards cell phones. I mean, they were banned. This is five years ago. Most job sites, even some of the local unions banned cell phones at work. Yeah. And, you know, that's not that long ago. That's when everybody was already Uber and DoorDash and everything like that. You know, you've got people who are really made efficiency out of their personal life. And then you take them to the job site and you're like, ah, 
<laughs> here's your binder and your stack of things. <laughs> like, this is how we're going to do things. And at some point when consumer tech becomes that obviously valuable, you, you almost can't keep it off your job site. You, you have to embrace it, I think, as an industry. And, uh, you know, we, we probably quite haven't quite had that moment yet on some of the, um, the next wave of reality, but it feels like it's imminent. Yeah. My yeah. So there was two other roundtables that were happening at the same time. The, the road forward, what's the new normal that Nathan Wood was hosting. And then Amy Marks hosted the industrialized construction. And they both kind of hit on some of these similar themes of hmm. when you know, the growth of technology that has happened over the, the last 18 months has made people more comfortable with technologies that obviously it's no secret that in construction, you have had some people that are like hardcore. No, <laughs> I, I don't want technology or resistant to technology and changing their workflow and their, their process. But people got forced to embrace it because you had to. Uh, and it has proved that it hasn't been as scary as what some people yeah. Yeah. probably thought. I missed um, Amy Mark's talk. What else that was uh, covered there that that I should have heard, Ted? Oh, there was a bunch of stuff. Yeah, Amy was really diving deep on her her productization. You know, obviously, she was our our keynote last year at MEP Force, and so there was a, a lot of kind of similar uh, kind of themes and and trends that that she was talking about. But really, just you know, Amy's the the best champion for industrialized construction and, and the the MEP trades of it's time to embrace this. This is, let's go do it. Let's make our data usable. It has to grow up. That was one of the big messages that she was pushing mm -hmm. is it is time to make the data more mature and make it usable, but also by making it mature, it has to be flexible and yeah. be parametric so that people can kind of shift it to their needs while also standardizing even though she said that that word scares most people. And so don't use that word. So sorry, Amy, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, standardize as much as you can in a scalable sort of way. Um, and the scalable in, in that context means have it so that you can make anything from a medium up to a large, and that's your, your scale that it's not, this is the medium, take it or leave it. You don't have to make the perfect part. You have to make something that kind of has a, a range of, of possibilities and that's how you start pulling the uh, industry over yeah i think she's right yep i love amy i'm sorry i'm sorry i missed that <laughs> you guys were competing we were, we were on the same yeah. i was like the amy's head to head <laughs> uh any other takeaways as we we wrap up here from day one i'll um i'll throw in this one just because we were we were chit chatting um about it before so we'll go ahead and throw it in officially um, is more than anything, I've kind of saw, uh, and, and I'll, I'll name the event, even though it's supposed to be nameless, uh, the, I'm calling, calling it kind of the great COVID accelerator, right? And it's really, um, I think it's obviously changed some things, just, just generally different, but for the most part, it's just sped up most of the change we probably would have already seen, you know, maybe 15 years, 10 years, it's just kind of like really accelerated that to really a, one you know, obviously challenge us to change, but two, in a lot of ways, give us kind of the safety to change to where it's not necessarily taboo to challenge some of those ideas. We may have already wanted to challenge secretly, 
you know, it's the old joke where anything that's going on now is because of COVID, right? You kind of everybody jokes about, oh, and why aren't we doing this? Or, you know, what, what's going on with that? It's COVID, right? That's the answer. Um, but in a lot of ways, it gave you that safety to say, hey, why are we doing something this way? You know, and it kind of allows you to bring up a lot of those kind of challenging conversations. So um, that's kind of what we were chit-chatting on uh, about before is really, I think it's just sped everything up more than anything just across the board. So, so, so um, how about from now on, instead of being reactive, how about let's be proactive because we've, we've understood now that change is not that scary. That's right. (laughs) So let's just change things for the better. Like, what do we like, want our lives to look like? How do we want our work lives and let's build it. We have the technology to do so. Yeah. (laughs) Fail fast, fail often. (laughs) Keep innovating. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I, I listened to Jonathan Marsh and, and Trent on the DFMA talk too, and, and there was a good, that ties in well with the theme of, of breaking some of the barriers to digital, just a, a manufacturing mindset and construction and how we're breaking barriers now faster than ever, but there's groundwork that's got to be done and uh, digital adoption groundwork that's got to be done before you can really think about manufacturing. But we've kind of been forcing ourselves to do it in the last, um, whether it's through collaboration, you know, uh, Zooms and all that type of stuff and also modeling collaboration that now enables downstream manufacturing that may not have happened uh, without the great, what's it, what do you call it? The great unspoken, Amy? Oh, the, the, the event that shall remain nameless. <laughs> the event that shall remain nameless. Yeah, yeah. But they had a really good talk too, Todd. I enjoyed uh, Jonathan and Trent give those guys a shout out. Nice. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time and unpacking day one. Looking forward to, to two more jam-packed days here coming Yay. up. Yay, IRL. Definitely. And we get to be in person <laughs> with some people tomorrow at a real block party in three cities, which will Yay. be fun. <laughs> All right. Nice. Thanks so much, everybody. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. And hopefully, you're attending MEP Force. If not, there's still time to register. Go to MEPForce.com. Use promo code BTG to get access to the next two days of classes. And you can also get access to the on-demand recordings of the sessions that you have missed so far. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software at ASTI.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is directed and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2021.